IT Pro TV, an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. Access over 2,000 hours of up-to-date, high-quality video content live and on demand for a free 7-day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account. Visit itpro.tv forward slash startup security and use the code SS30. Welcome back, everyone, to Startup Security Weekly. I'm better now. I have bourbon in my Security Weekly. I don't know how well you can see that. Security Weekly shot glass, which... Oh, I like that. Nobody else has but us right now. This is the security. It says no more... Some say no more secrets. Some say hack the planet, I believe. Uh, so this is my no more secrets Security Weekly shot glass. It's red on the inside. And there's bourbon also on the inside. Well, it wouldn't be a shot glass if it didn't have that. <laughs> so. That's right. So hopefully that will make me not miss announcements and stuff. Woo! Uh, so these will debut at DEF CON. I'm not giving them out anywhere else. Very cool. But at DEF CON, other than the ones we're using here in, in the studio, hopefully we don't break too many. Um, <laughs> yeah, like that'll happen. So ITPro.tv's courses now include Apple Certified Support Professional, CompTIA Security Plus, and ITIL Planning Protection and Optimization. Premium annual memberships include all video content as well as access to virtual labs and the Q&A forums. You'd pay $85.70 a month or $857 per year, but we've got a special offer for a limited time. Get 30% off monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription using the code SS30. How about that? I actually like that model. I, I, <clears throat> I'm, always, uh, I'm always impressed by people that uh, continue to innovate, put new content forward, and then give you a blanket subscription and say, look, whatever price you lock in at, you keep it. I, I love that model. So I, I, I'm a fan. And what do you think of our shot glasses, huh? I want one. <laughs> we'll get you one. We'll get you one. I think we have. Do we have a shirt to send you, Michael? We might have a shirt to no. send you. No. When we, we, sent when we connected oh, yeah. up at ISW, I have it. You know we'll what? Just, I, we'll should, I, should, I need to wear it one of these weeks. I we'll apologize. send you some glassware. We have rocks glasses and beer glasses as well. Yeah, that's awesome. That's totally awesome. <clears throat> I love it. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> that bourbon. Woo. Well, yeah, and you know, we haven't had a lot of listener feedback in a while, but but some of it does trickle in, and sometimes I just forget. Um, we have had some people, Paul, that have said, "Hey, love the show," and uh, have asked us if we would think about doing some some segments or uh, some special, some even a special or two on like more of the lifestyle business of consulting. So the lifestyle side, just to kind of read everybody into it, is looking at things like. You've been a professional. It doesn't matter whether your products or services or whatever. You've got a skill set in security. We know there's a heavy demand for people who do security right now. And you're kind of thinking, I don't know if I want to work nine to five for somebody else. I want to work, you know, honestly, from like 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. for myself, uh, six days a week. It, but that does give you certain flexibility. And what I've started to realize is, uh, there's a lot of interest in that and a lot of ways to set that up. So if that's you, reach out to us. Let us know. Let us know some of your specific questions. And what I've offered to the couple of folks that have asked us is, Paul, we will put something together. It might be over the summer. Um, and you know, we'll look for an episode or two or, or some way to, to kind of handle some of that. But if that's an area of interest for folks, uh, I'm happy to do that. So I just wanted awesome. to kind of cover that because people oh, have been asking about it. You know what else I did when I couldn't <clears throat> sleep last night? I went and I watched um, the last episode of season one of uh, Silicon Valley. <laughs> but what's funny is what I picked up on this time around, and I was really watching because we referenced middle out compression, which is just one of the most hilarious scenes ever uh, in a previous show. But 
<clears throat> also in that show, you if you watch it, you realize like their uh, product was basically someone else trumped them on their product announcement, right? And the the guy, the the weird guy that that gets locked in the container ship, the I forget his name on the show. He's like, guys, we need to pivot. And he's like, do you know what pivoting is? And they're like, can you shut up now? He's like, no, it's when you take your original idea and you pivot and you go with a different idea. Dude, I was dying. That was almost that was so much funnier the second time around since we've talked about <laughs> pivoting. And then he starts going and interviewing people about, hey, we're from Pied Piper. What if we had an app that let you track your baby? And like all these like bizarre ideas that had nothing to do with the original company. Really funny. Uh all right, I so I got some TV to follow up on when I can. I, I mean, I, I told you, right? I mean, I, I canceled Netflix. Uh, and I got rid of the cable. The TV's largely disconnected. Uh, so I yes. did. Uh, I did get Rogue One. I watched Star Wars, but beyond that, I don't. I don't do a lot of that. So I picked some stories this week to kind of cover a couple different things. So. Well, uh, I was just telling Paul uh, before we got started here, um, I try to pick these now in advance, and part of that is I'm starting to try to level it out. I do pay attention to the feedback. I'm also trying to pay attention to the conversations I'm having. One of the things, Paul, that I love about this program is it's stimulating a lot of good conversations with both people in the enterprises uh, asking about these types of things. Because I think one of the roles that we get to play in this show is highlighting some of those challenges. It's it's not just a fest of startups. It's looking at, as we've said multiple times, the security of business, the business of security, and the way that some of this stuff advances. And I'm getting more and more tuned to the fact that it's really an ecosystem. So if you're watching us and you're an enterprise person, you have a really powerful role in helping the venture capitalists figure out where to put their money and helping the startups better understand where to put their focus. And that's great. And so I want to keep highlighting that. Same thing on the startups, because as Stephen just said in our interview, that's driving a lot of that innovation. A lot of that R&D today is coming from those startups. And so that's invaluable. And then the financial sector and, and all the investment is actually really helping to sort that and to guide that and to shape that. So it's all really good as all that comes together. So I'm trying to pick articles that appeal across all of those things. And then, of course, it gives us a way to take a look at it. So here's the interesting one, because obviously we talk a lot about funding. In fact, there's some notes that we'll talk about later today all about funding. And, and this one really captured me because it said, you know, here's why your startup doesn't need any, any significant funding, any funding, to succeed. And I think it's good to remind people of that because we do this a lot when we do the interviews. You know, did you have a seed round? Did it, how did that work? Did you guys bootstrap? And there's, there's no, there's not no shame in bootstrapping. What this argument makes is it's actually sometimes better to bootstrap. And it starts out with a pretty interesting statistic. Uh, VCs reject 98 to 99% of the pitches. It said, uh, in fact, they accept and, and finance only one or two out of every 100 pitches they see. Now, mind you, as somebody who takes a lot of pitches, that's got to be mind-numbing for them because I don't take that many. Uh, well, I, I probably take about 100, 150 a year, but they, I'm, I'm sure their scale is a lot faster. So part of me trying to wrap my head around that. But here's the other thing too, right? We, we keep hearing this statistic, like only one out of every 10 companies will succeed. And I've had a lot of people pushing back on that the last couple of weeks, like only one out of every 25 succeeds. And you've started to notice a trend in the stories that we share and the concepts that we talk about that says, you know, get to your first customer. 
close your first thousand dollars. Do it again. Start figuring out that product market fit. Focus on profitability and then figure out how all else works. And that's kind of what the person here is saying is just saying, look, 99.95% of startup founders, they're not going to get funding for it. But you don't have to do it with funding. You bootstrap, figure out how to, you know, and, and it, it lists out a couple different ideas here. I've essentially uh, bootstrapped, Paul. You're you're you've essentially and are bootstrapping. Wow. I think and there's really, a lot of benefits. Really, to what it. bootstrapping means is that you're not just the owner of the company; you're the investor as well. <laughs> so I think it's well, that's a fair point. That's that's a really fair point. Now, the thing that I've learned doing this program uh, is that I I think it's care. Here's the finer point I have on this article: you don't have to get funding. Here's the other. Here's a counterpoint: you don't have to not get funding. I think the, it's a question of what are you trying to get accomplished and, and what do you need to do? And when we start looking at stages, and I'm starting to work on a series for that too, so obviously, Paul, that'll fold into our work here, but looking at stages of companies and looking at risks of companies, you know, the stage that you're at with the team that you have and the problem you're trying to solve kind of dictates whether you need it or not because we've talked about the risk of taking too little money. We've talked about the risk of taking too much money. And I think what this is saying is just, just you know, if you go for money and you don't get it, it doesn't mean you can't start. And if you don't go for money and you're bootstrapping, awesome. But that doesn't mean you can't take money. And I, I think it's just an important thing to think about. The uh, The other article that I thought was really interesting was Funnels for Startups. Uh, it's a primer. Now, we've talked about this before. What I liked was with, with this one, because I thought it really made a lot of sense, is that there's different funnels. So whether you're selling to another business or you're trying to fundraise. Now, Paul, we've talked about this before with pitches. We said, look, it's not one pitch fits all. In fact, the more we focus on value prop, the more I've realized you really, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't differentiate who it is you're talking to. I mean, from a communication perspective, I could go on for that for hours. But just, so what's interesting is we talk about this concept of a funnel. Now, this is really useful to you. And I think I've mentioned it on this program before, but I'm going to say it again. If you're in the enterprise, you still need to know about the funnel for two reasons. One, you're going to need this when you're trying to sell what you do to the rest of the organization. Also, two, it really helps you if you understand the way that the industry tends to apply these things. Uh, I'm always disheartened when I see people say, I'm, I'm the CISO, and I'm really busy, and I know what I need anyway, and I'll tell you what I need. Uh, it doesn't work that way. You, there's, it's just it's, it's not possible. Uh, you might be the smartest person in the room, and congratulations. But we, we need to be able to work with other people and figure it out. Now, what I found, though, is that I do have people, and Paul, you know, I've talked about this a lot, usually off air, uh, because on this program, I, you know, it's not so much about calling people out for bad actions, but you can tell, like, look, I'm not a qualified lead. I'm not in your funnel. I'm not at that stage yet. Whoa, whoa, you're pushing too hard. You know, what's, what's great is instead of just like responding to people poorly is understanding how these things work and being able to say, oh, I get it. You know what? Let's go back. We didn't qualify yet. And that works both ways. You may not have qualified the lead, but the lead or the prospect may not have been able to qualify what you do. It's a, it's a dance, and I don't mean that in a bad way. There's a process to it, and if you think of it as some shady tactic to get you to give up money, uh, wow, that sucks. I mean, that's a horrible attitude, and, and if that's your attitude, then that's too bad. It was probably forged by somebody who didn't know what they were doing, and I would, I would invite you to read an article like this and think about it again, because here's the other piece to it. And Paul, I think I shared this with you before. I finally figured out, like for me, it kind of comes down to you've got, you know, leads, you've got opportunities, uh, and you've got, uh, or you got prospects and opportunities, leads, prospects, opportunities. A lead, sometimes called a suspect, it's it's people you know. 
and they're qualified if you know about them. What problems are they trying to solve? Um, what kind of budget do they have? What kind of time frame do they need to move on? They're prospects when they have the problem that you solve in a way that creates value for them. So that means they're a fit. Now, they may not see that fit yet, but the problem that they need to solve, one of their priorities is a problem that you solve. They're an opportunity when they realize it and they're ready for change. Now, they may have the problem, but not the budget. They may have the problem, but not the discomfort with status quo. When you start to think about that, that's when you can say to somebody, listen, I'm a prospect. I have that problem. I'm not ready yet. I, you know, and so if somebody then resorts to tricks like, well, you know, let me make it worse for you, you can be pretty candid with them and say, look, I, I don't, I'm not there yet. Unless you can help me solve this problem or this problem to get to that problem, I can't. So it, it's useful. If you're in a startup world, it's useful to think about this. If you're not in the startup world, I think it's more useful to think about this because it helps you understand the process that people need to go through and that you need to go through. And when you understand it, eyes wide open, you can actually move it faster when you want to because you can work together on it better. Well, I mean, do you have a take on that? Yeah, I think what people don't understand or, or misinterpret about funnels is they th try to think of their funnel as too small or they focus on the smaller uh, end of the funnel. And what you have to realize is that your funnel has to be pretty big uh, to reach a wider audience to get people down into the funnel. So the wider your, your top is, the more people that you're going to find that, like you said, Michael, meet your criteria to become uh, prospects. And I know we say, like, you know, you shouldn't sell to everyone, but... I always recommend, largely because of the business I'm in, that the top of the funnel be, be wider and then hone in from there. And it's a process, and the most important process right in sales is getting people from the top of that funnel all the way down to the bottom where it's a sale. And yep, that's the, the funnel, customer journey. Yeah, and it's more about that process than it is about, well, I want to focus marketing efforts on in directly in the middle of my funnel or at the top of my funnel. No, it's about moving people through the funnel. Yeah. And then measuring it, right? Now, yeah. I'll, I'm going to go ahead and agree with you. I, I think that regardless of the business in, you want to try to reach some sort of a broader top to that funnel. And that's where things like webinars and, and, and participating with and, and working with those on this program help and all those types of things, they're great. But then what I'm also starting to realize is there's this concept, you know, we haven't done much about it. So I'll start looking for opportunities uh, for guests and for stuff on this, but marketing automation. Now I know you've got some background on this, but that's like, and we all get this, right? You, you go to the website, you sign up for something and then you get the autoresponder message and you're like, I know it sounds like they just wrote that to me, but I know that they didn't just write that to me. No, they didn't. Um, but the idea is to automate some of that process to both educate you and help you select whether you want to be part of that or not. So right. the thing is, if you're going to have a broader funnel, which I agree with you, I think is good because you know the rest of it that I'm starting to learn too is sometimes when you're solving a unique problem, people don't realize right away that they have that problem. And they need time to, to learn about it or to internalize it and to figure it out. If you write them off because they didn't immediately fit, well, I think you're missing out, and so are they. But if you if you regard it as a journey, an opportunity to partner and work together and learn from each other, automate the high volume stuff. And but as people start getting closer into it, I would expect a higher touch and a better level of service. Well, let me be clear: I expect a higher touch and better level of service right. uh, as I move through your funnel. Uh, you know, other people may may want it differently. Yep. Um, all right. So since we're on money. Um, I told you before uh, that that we brought up Elizabeth Yin. Like, 
good find, and I really enjoy the stuff that she writes. So I wanted to throw this one in there. And she talked about getting investors' attention. And, and so, again, what's interesting, she said one of the panelists said, well, don't bombard me at an event. And, and it, this kind of goes to the point I just made. Like, security people say, I don't want to be pitched. I don't want to be sold. And, and I, guys, you got to stop that because everybody we talk to who's successful says the exact opposite. I'll listen. Mm-hmm. I'll take a pitch. I'll figure it out. And she said, look, you know what? You have to. Like, she disagrees with this. She's like, that's exactly uh, – I get it. I don't know how busy investors are. I, so let's go ahead and stipulate everybody's busy. This is one of the things I write about a lot when we look at friction. We look at organization. Everybody's busy. Everybody's just as busy as you are, and everybody thinks that they're busier than you are, mm-hmm. just like you do. And so what happens is her point was, look, you, you got to get in. And she gives a pretty good breakdown, and she said, look, when somebody's got that unstructured time, they're, they're not in the middle of something. They're at a conference. They're sitting between it. They're walking in the hallway. You, that's your chance. And she said, you know, look, it's an elevator pitch. I, I, I still kind of bristle at those, but mm. the point is, right, because here's what I'd rather do. Capture my attention. Now, if you want to call it an elevator pitch, that's fine. Uh, I'm just sidestepping it because of the this, this stigma that sometimes gets attached to them. What problem do you solve, right? Because, frankly, if you can capture me quick by isolating down the problem, phrasing it as a question, talking about the value you create, we're good. Keep in mind, if you're pitching an investor, it's different than pitching a potential customer. But I, I kind of liked it. So what are your thoughts? Oh, I, I think pitching is, is great. I think you should always – well, I think – you, you need always to be pitching. ABP. Always, always be pitching, but realize, as you said, Michael, like you gotta like hone your pitch. You kind of hinted towards that, right? Like sometimes people, you just gotta learn to gauge what type of pitch to give to someone, right? And sometimes that's just understanding maybe where in the funnel they are. Uh, to go back to our previous conversation, right? And asking questions or saying things that may invoke keywords that say, "Well, well, they really are interested, or they are a right fit." Um, and then getting into more detail. So I always try and uh, customize my pitch to the audience wherever I am. That's why you're good at what you do, Paul. And I think that's the right thing. I mean, like, it's funny, as we were just talking, and we like to reference movies, I mean, I think back to Wall Street and Bud Fox and 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 trying to pitch, you know, GG. And and persistence, persistence, persistence. One day he finally says, okay, you got, you know, was it five minutes? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do you got for me? Um, I think that that's both typical and rare, and I appreciate that was from the 90s, but you know, the, the late 80s. But w- when we go back and we look at this now, some people just just get to the point, and and you need to know that. Like I've watched a lot of people in the years, they want to do the big wind up, they want to set all the scene. I don't need that. Just cut to it. I follow the industry. Cut to cut to your point. Give me something interesting that I hadn't heard, and we'll dig. And, and I'll give you more time. Now I'm not obviously an investor yet. Um, but, you know, I, the more we cover this space, the more I, I, I'm excited about the opportunities into it. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to point out to people, don't I, I get a lot of like, well, what's the rule? What's the, there's no rules. Mm-hmm. First rule, there's no rules. This isn't Fight Club. Go out. If you've got an idea and you believe in it, then spend the time distilling it and articulating it. And then if there's somebody you want to pitch, don't blindly walk up and go, oh, Paul, I just heard you talk. So like you're an investor and stuff. Well, I got an idea. Like you want to hear it? That's that's not that's not going to work. Mm-mm. But but if you know who's there and why they're there and you can give them something that you think that they're going to be excited about, go for it, man. Woman, go for it. Hit it. So I thought it was good. Um, 
PitchBook is a fair, fairly new source for me, but I, I'm really kind of digging it, especially because they look at the whole totality of uh, private equity, venture capital, and mergers and acquisitions, right? And that's that's essentially what we cover. Um, so they anybody who does these types of analysis, I really I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, and what they basically said was, there's a lot of startups that are turning to debt. Um, debt financing instead of, you know, and it has dangers. Here's the danger of the debt. Debt comes with risk. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, debt's got a payback time. And if you don't pay back, then you, you know, you're basically done and, or it creates this insurmountable hurdle for you to get over. And, And so we're not just talking about, you know, well, I mean, I'm a startup. I can put it on my credit card, right? I mean, there's yes, tons of stories of people right. who have done that, uh, and and there's times that it works out. But what this is talking about are people that they go, and and they get some sort of not debt equity. They just get debt. They they take out a loan. They get something, some sort of a line of credit, and um, and it just doesn't always work out. And so it just said, look, um, it it doesn't always work out because when a loan comes due, you may be caught flat-footed, right. and 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 everything you've worked for is gone in an instant. I so think your, your first time startup, like I wouldn't recommend you do any kind of debt. Um, I think uh, even in, in your, your first round or, or seed money, you shouldn't do debt. You should get some experience under your belt. And I think the reason why uh, investing works better for first time startups is you get some of that guidance and advice. Not only that, but it forces you to think about what your plan of attack is once you get money. Like you're forced into doing that. And not only that, you have to like basically pitch that again to the investor and say, okay, you know, here's the plan uh, that you may get a rough plan from the investor. You're going to go back and say, okay, now here's how we're going to execute the plan. Uh, And it forces you to go through that exercise, which I think is really important. When you just take debt money, like you're just taking money. There's no advice or process that comes with it. It's up to you to define all those things. And if you don't, then you could be in debt for a long time. Yeah, and there's some stuff I've learned about um, uh, debt financing too. It's kind of interesting. I mean, like uh, I, I'm doing this off of memory, but uh, was it Dropbox just did a 500 million dollar debt? It yeah. wasn't a debt debt equity; it was debt, mm-hmm. like a, a credit a loan, line with yeah. uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, I think it was. Here's the thing: when you're that big of a company and you've got that big of the money. Uh, the bank is at as much risk as you are, right. so they've got a lot of flexibility. You'll see them renegotiate terms and work out stuff. Uh, you're a startup and you got a fifty thousand dollar loan. Mm. Yet yeah, uh, no. your flexibility is zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just keep some of that stuff in mind because when you see somebody else do it, you go, "Oh, well, Uber just did it. No. Google did it. Yeah, nope, you're yeah, not Uber. Yeah, you're not right. Google. You're not. You're not these big companies." Um, and I, I, you know, Paul, I think it's good advice too because you know a lot of us have made mistakes at some point where you know you're like, "Oh, this will work out this way." Oh, I'll just put that on my credit card and then it didn't work out that way but now you owe that bill okay well take that and now put that in, in your company put that into the loans put that into everything else and you start to realize ah it's different last story i put in now i i shared this out before i shared it out on linkedin and it got some really uh it got some really cool feedback um especially from uh from the folks that have served in the military mm. but it said why shifts and soldiers make the best product managers and i Love put this. it in because i know that, that you've got yeah and, and i know you got some stuff around it and uh I've always enjoyed my time in the restaurants, and I've always enjoyed being around a kitchen. So that's that's still fun for me. And I got it. I, I got about that idea of being able to look at stuff. Uh, you know, if you're in a kitchen, especially if you're in a commercial kitchen, and you know you're cooking some rate of food, like usually measured in dollars per hour, across your your grill and your apparatus you don't have room to screw up. It's high pressure Mm. and you got a lot of different pieces and you got to put it together. And sometimes you're customizing stuff on the fly. And so I was like, I totally got this. 
Now, what's interesting is the soldiers part to it, man, was there a lot of insight mm-hmm. as to <laughs> which branch you were in and what your job was and whether you were enlisted an officer <laughs> and whether you were tactical or not tactical. So I, I'll leave that to those of you that have that experience to, to chime in on that. And I would love to hear more about it. But I like the idea of, um, in fact, the one I liked the best was the intense preparation. I, oh, I've learned in the, in the kitchens, and it, it works. In fact, I just had this conversation with my kids last night. We did a, ta- a chore outside, and I prepared for it ahead of time. I told everybody what we are going to do. We knocked it out faster than they expected, but then when we were done, I cleaned everything up and put it all back where it was. And I explained to them, you know, it, it's um, – Mise en, place, mise en place is the concept in cooking. Everything has its place. And you can use it as a mental concept as well that says, before I cook, I'm going to take the ingredients out. I know what the general plan is. And you run it over in your head. Some prep you can do ahead of time, some stuff you do on the fly. If, you, if everything has its place and you know where its place is, you can move faster. And you can do better. And then all you do in the end is, is you finish it up, right? So it's, it's not just starting, it's finishing and I think that matters for product managers. I think that matters for anything in the startup world. And I just I thought that that was really cool. Like that with pressure to me, I was like, yeah, that's the, that's the winning combo. Which one stood out to you? Would you like? Oh, strong decision making with imperfect information. Oh my mm. god, is that? I mean, that's a skill that I want all of my employees to have. That's a skill I want everyone I work with in general to have. Um, and I think it really speaks to the chef and the soldier, certainly. Um, you know, on the soldier's side, if they're in combat, and I understand there's lots of different, you know, military branches, services, roles you can have. I get it. But if you're in the field, I can only imagine that if you're in life or death situations, you're making some very serious decisions that could impact your life and other people's lives with imperfect information. Um, And that working with product managers um, not only are they given imperfect information, they also have imperfect information from multiple different sources. Uh, and yeah. that's just, uh, that's just beautiful right there. That's just beautiful right there. I think that's, you need that skill, uh, in a lot of different roles, uh, especially, uh, soldier, chef or product manager. Yeah, I like it. All right. So in the, the, the news and notes of interest, so, so Fetcher Beat ran this piece that said that the startups, the surge in startups in the capital could be bad news. And so what it's looking at is this concept of the overhang. And what it's basically saying is, okay, hold on. If we go back and we look at it and it says, you know, according to our data, January 2004, there were 5,350 venture-backed companies in the U.S. As of March 31st, 2017, it's 16,064 companies. And so his point is, whoa. This is a lot bigger than I expected it to be. And, and what he's basically saying is that uh, between 1999 and 2001, venture firms raised $182 billion to invest into startups. That created a big venture capital overhang. So basically, there's too much cash chasing those deals. So that basically meant uh, that that cash got invested over a 10-year cycle. Then you had the crash. So now people are trying to figure out how to get out of it. They're trying to pull up their liquidity. So now you have fewer IPOs and mergers and acquisitions, and it all just kind of gets nutty. And then, oh, by the way, now anybody can do a startup. Now it's cheap. Now with cloud and mobile and everything else, your, your total time to market, your MVP, that's almost nothing. And now we're looking at apps and tech. And so basically what he's saying in a really detailed way is the whole landscape's changed. And because the whole landscape's changed, all this money 
means what, what are they chasing after? And so basically we're going to see this other surge and we're not going to know what to do with it. And so now all these companies, even if they don't compete with each other, they're going to compete for talent, which is actually competition for each other. And that means that they're going to count, they're going to, uh, they're going to compete for customers and everything else. So basically what he's looking at is this, uh, and I'll be uh, pretty blunt. I think it's a very narrow view that basically says, if I'm an investor and I'm throwing my money in this space, I want a better return. And you're telling me I'm not going to get a better return because there's too many other people throwing money in this space. Um, I get the logic. It's just absurd because I see it from the other side. That means that we have to go through more funnels. I think more money actually means we might start to see more seed rounds. In fact, we've got a story about that in a second. I think we might see more seed rounds that are in line with what we used to see because it is cheaper to test. It is cheaper. It's, it's easier to take that first risk and to de-risk it. I think, too, and we're seeing this in security, we're going to start to see more specialized investment criteria and funds. I mean, even in security, I'm willing to bet that's going to, it's going to strike. There's too much. There's what, 2,500 funded startups in the security space right now. Paul, we couldn't interview all of them in a 10 year period, 2050. Like we, we, it's just not possible if, even if we wanted to. Hmm. And so what's going to start to happen is, uh, and I've, I've been talking to enough people in, in uh, private equity and venture capital that say, Michael, we can't keep our heads wrapped around it. How do, how do we start to sort it? How do we help the space figure out who the winners are? How does the space help figure out who the winners are? And I go back to a conversation I had. So if you remember, I mean, you've, you've been doing the podcasting for a, a long time. We got started around the same time. That's how we met. I just mm-hmm. quit and, and didn't keep going. But I don't know about you. I used to go to like the podcast expos and stuff like that. And it was a buddy of mine at the time working for Yahoo on their podcasting stuff. And I remember sitting down with them over drinks and kind of lamenting, oh, well, you know, uh, now there's all these other people trying to do it, and isn't that going to suck? And he said, no, and Michael, it's the opposite. Now that there's other people doing it, you, you're going to have a much bigger base. And yes, it'll be harder to percolate up to the top, but what rises to the top will be better. Mm-hmm. And that's good for everybody. Yep. And I was like, oh, all right, I get it. I take the same stage, you know, I take the same thing with this. Now, will will the discipline change? Yes. Will the way that we look at it change? Yeah. By the way, we're already seeing that. Um, obviously I'm a capitalist and I, I favor, you know, lower restrictions of people. I'm a libertarian at heart. So I, I, I like it. I just wanted to point it out and say, I see his logic. I just think there's a different story and I, I wanted to offer a, a counterpoint to it. That's all. No, I know. I and, agree with you on that, on the podcast front, as in, a, the startup, in the startup front. And, and on the, and on that front, um, so the crunch network, and I really like the coverage for TechCrunch. um, Breaking records, enterprise fundings are up nearly 80% in Q1 uh, 2017. Here's what it means. They've started looking at enterprise security technology startups. So if, or not just security, sorry. If you're, if you're a startup and you're going after an enterprise marketplace uh, in technology, but then, they, they, but then they specifically said, here's where we see it focusing. Data analytics, okay, we talk about that a lot, right? Cloud native infrastructure, we talk about that a lot. Cybersecurity and AI powered businesses. So AI or whatever you want to call it. Oh, well, gosh, that's pretty much what we cover because you can't do any of those without cybersecurity. So all I'm pointing out is, you know, because every now and then we'll throw up the stories of like, oh, funding's off, starts are off, IPOs. Uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, no, if you, I mean, what you and I get with our ear to the ground is it's, there's never been a better time. So if you're interested in this, hop in, man. There's, woman, there, there's stuff cate- to do. Their categories are interesting. Um, you know, the general cybersecurity, cloud-native infrastructure, I agree with. Uh, data and analytics, I think, is spot on because you had a Cisco acquisition in there. 
yeah. Viptela, and they also yep. made it. They made another acquisition. Their product was was like lube something, dude. Oh my god, we were laughing hysterically about this on <laughs> Enterprise Security Weekly. But it's the same thing. It was like the same kind of data. It was data analytics. It sounds like the exact same thing yeah. that this other company does that they bought. Uh, who did they buy? Hold on, it's coming. It's coming. Um, Cisco uh, Segeza. Segeza makes a, a lube product. I'm serious, and not like personal lubricant or for cars like it's an it product dude okay I'm, you have to i have oh what did they call it it's lube something um but it's basically data analytics so i agree with uh lube insights that was the name of the product lube insights i can't make that stuff up dude um so uh i think their category where they get into ai powered i think a lot of that ai really means automation and those are two different things machine learning ai automation or orchestration yeah, I I like those are all completely even orchestration and automation are two totally different things like yep, orchestration yep. is like a, a a deeper form of or more uh, uh, integrated form of automation and i think we're seeing a lot of those uh companies too well so fu- funny point deep sentinel seven and a half almost 7.4 million dollars to bring deep learning to home security. Now, you and I have talked both on camera and off camera about uh, cameras and security systems mm. and looking at this type of stuff. And uh, and so this is what I thought was kind of interesting. Deep Sentinel is a home security startup. They closed a $7.4 million Series A. So this is not small. And what they basically said is uh, the legacy players in the home security space. So these are the ones we see the ads for all the time. They'll come, they'll put up a couple sensors on doors and uh, glass breakage, and mm-hmm. they'll call out when there's something wrong. And what they said is, look, this doesn't really help us at all. Here's what you need to do. In fact, here's what he said. Uh, he's confident he can expand the market and steal market share by moving the security line to the perimeter of a property rather than the perimeter of a home. To do this, the company's producing a series of cameras powered by deep learning that can evaluate threats on a property. Now, two things flashed up when I read that. First, I went, that's interesting. Second, I looked at that and I went, wait, how easy is that? And so what it basically said is, it seems easy because you can contextually start to look at shapes and sizes and separate out a squirrel or a cat, say, from a person. Oh, okay. That's machine learning all day long, by the way. And so what's starting to happen then is that they're trying to do that and then start to figure out other things so that it's not just that you have a camera and the camera's alerted because of motion, but that it's actually alerting you to potential or actual threats yeah. and things that you need to know. And I, and I was kind of like, that's really kind of interesting. So I, I've got two questions for you. Here's the first one. What do you think of it overall? And then here's my second question. And, and I'm going to peg this from, from my thoughts on ransomware, and, and hopefully people can excuse the juxtaposition. Ransomware, we knew this was coming, but we dis- we dismissed it largely because we looked at ransomware and we said, well, they're just attacking home users and it's like 100 bucks and nobody really cares. And then uh, what we realized was, no, no, that was how they were using it to learn how to make it something more industrial. And well, boom, now we have this ransomware epidemic. And I looked at this and I went, why the hell would you do the home crowd? And I went, oh, because if you can perfect this technology at the home user level, how hard would it be to translate to uh, the physical security in organizations everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, right, because to your point, that's machine learning. So once you start building the models and gathering the data and 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 doing your structured and unstructured learning on it, yep. wow. So thoughts on, on my, uh, my oh, thoughts? I, 
I think if they have great um, data scientists um, and they can perfect that model, they're going to do great things because I think it's a it's a great use case for machine learning. Um, so in this case, it's really going to come down to to the mathematicians and the data scientists that have gotten their ability to craft the model uh, and and get good data, right? Well, yeah, that and I was just going to say that, Michael. Did to get good data means you can't have really crappy cameras, or maybe you can. I'm not sure, but um, that'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Yeah. Well, so, um, maybe, maybe we actually, it might be interesting if we could reach out to them and chat because again, right. It's, it's a home security, which mm. we, we tend to cover stuff that's more going for the enterprise. But again, you know, it, and what's interesting about that too, then is I'm now going to be curious to see what their, their UX is like. Um, uh, because I, I see a lot of people trying to sell on that too. So anyway, a lot here to take a look at. And I thought that that was interesting. The last part that I thought that was also interesting uh, Quartz ran a piece on a startups doing this thing called the second seed round. Now, as I've been learning about the different rounds, right? So you have a seed round, and then you move into, you know, and if you get past that, you get into a Series A round, and then as, uh, and that's, and, and like I said, and I've alluded to it, I'm starting to put together uh, a bit of a series, of some writing around the different stages, because I've had somebody ask recently, well, what, when is a startup not a startup? And it's kind of like in our last interview, Stephen said, you know, we're hardly a startup. We've been around for years. Yeah, but you're still you're still at your Series B. You're still getting that product market fit. You're still you haven't exited yet, and and so in a lot of cases, frankly, you're a startup until you exit. There are some other ways that you might no longer really be a startup, and that's fine. But here's the thing: what we're starting to see is there used to be a stigma around taking a second of the same round. There used to be a stigma around leaving your round open for too long because you didn't know what you were doing. You were just trying to raise all the funds. And what we're starting to find now is that there's a, there's a number. So here, again, I, I always like the numbers. The number of startups taking a second tranche of seed rounds, of, uh, seed funds rose from 34 in 2010 to 830 in 2016. Wow. That's a huge difference. And what it's basically – and, and it, it was kind of fair here. It said once relatively rare, the rounds growing popularity is likely due to the rising bar for Series A funding – as well as the increasing number of cash-conscious startups led by founders who want to extend their initial fund, uh, initial financial runway before they try to do a bigger fundraising round that dilutes the ownership. So, you know, I mean, the thing that's kind of interesting is it, we just had somebody put out a position that said there's too much money, we're not sure how to handle it or what we're doing. We've talked to other people that have said, look, the valuations are getting too big too fast, the rounds are getting bigger, which is putting more pressure on people. And here we're starting to see people saying, you know what, I've got a round. And this is, it's not really clear on this. So what I want to dig into is, so if you do a second seed round, does that mean you're keeping the same valuation? Like you're not necessarily diluting your ownership more. You're keeping whatever your seed round valuation was, and people are putting more cash into it, hoping that you've got a plan for that money that's going to get you to the next round, which then increases your valuation. That's to be fair. It's, it's interesting. And whereas once upon a time that would be looked at as a failure, uh, people are kind of sidestepping that and saying, nope, it's good. It's a good strategy, and we'll get to this next tier. So I just want to offer it because it's it's a little counter to some of the stuff that we're seeing, but the numbers are suggesting it's not as bad as everybody thought. And again, this is the market working itself out. I'll be curious to see how that plays out. And frankly, I'll be curious to see if that plays out so much for, like, for security companies uh, versus not security companies. How's your journey going, Michael? Uh, it's been good. You know, I got a question for you, mm. uh, and I got a, I got a question for some other people. So as you and I have talked, um, I came up with this value prop audit, and, and it kind of morphed a little bit in a, in a really positive way. 
there's the three parts of your value prop, right? So it's the problem that you solve, the value you create solving it, and then it's the impact of your solution. By the way, all of that work has now triggered. There will be an update to the Straight Talk framework this summer, uh, both in order, and I'm changing out one of the questions, shifting a couple of things around so it works better, makes more sense. And that, that'll happen uh, over the summer, hopefully after the move. So, uh, so I got the rubric down, Paul. It's uh, 18 points. So for each of those six areas, I asked three questions. We use a, a Likert scale. So that's the, do you, you know, uh, agree, disagree, strongly agree, yeah, strongly yeah. disagree. Um, and, and every time somebody runs through it, it, it's remarkable for both of us. Like it's, it's a really good conversation. But then I noticed something in the last uh, three, uh, two weeks about maybe uh, 10 days or so. I've offered it to people. I've offered it to, now to be fair, uh, I've offered it to a series of vendors. They've all declined. And I, and I think the word is audit. I think they're terrified because if we're mm -hmm. fair, a lot of people don't know how to answer those questions and they know coming into it, they don't know how to answer those questions. And you're like, um, we'd rather just talk to you. Like, like we don't want to be ass assessed on how we're doing, even though they're probably doing a crap job. My question is, should I not call it an audit? What the thought I had last night was I should call it. A, so I had this, I already have an offering. I call it communication breakdown. And we, we take a look at whatever communication you want and then we break it down and then we put it back together. And I thought, you know, maybe I should just stick with that approach here. And it would be, you know, the straight talk on value prop breakdown. And we could just have a conversation. So I would see that working two ways. You look at it and you go, dude, I don't have that stuff yet. No worries. Let's go talk through what you do have. And I'll help you figure out where you need to put focus. Yeah, no, I or, hey, I've, yeah. I've got it. I've got it. Check, check me out. And we could do the breakdown. <sighs> and we'll break it down by the 18 points and, and, you know, score it if you want or not. Is it a name thing? Is it's it a, a just a I don't have complete data and I'm I'm overthinking it? Like how how yeah, do you think? My guess think? is it's a name thing. People don't like the word audit. I agree. I think you should change it to breakdown. I also think that maybe you're not catching the right person. Yeah, at I think that that's vendor. fair. Uh, would be Actually, my just having done this for a while. I, that would be my guess. Yeah, you know what's interesting? Okay, you know what's interesting? I'll be upfront. Uh, when I talk to the chief marketing officer or the head of sales, mm -hmm. first thing they say is, "Good, I'm ready. When can we do it?" Yep. And if you talk to somebody who's more on the PR side, or oh, you talk to no. somebody who's more on the other side, they go, yeah, uh, no, thanks. Nope. I don't, I'm, okay, so you're right. It's a, it's a person issue. All right, mm -hmm. cool. Um, so that's it. Now, the other thing I figured out then is that um, I was overthinking. I had a, we call it monkey mind. I introduced it before. I was overcomplicating stuff and trying to be perfect. Um, I'm going to push now this week. I'm going to create a simpler resource on value prop and why it's so important. And I want to, I want to introduce an idea to people. Value prop is your guiding star. Yes, you can have a value prop that positions you in a marketplace and everything else. But if you're a team or you're an individual or you're a company or it's a product or it's a project, there's a value proposition to it. And that guides the clarity on the roles and the focus that guides the priority of effort and everything else. I'm going to try to put it together in one page as a visual and then like, I don't know, three to five pages answering some of the, the core pieces to it. Uh, if that's interesting to somebody out there and you want to kind of get an early version of it, um, keep your foot in my back so I get it done faster and then review it. Tell me what you like. Tell me the parts that were confusing. I'll make it better. And then, and then we've got a resource we'll put out for people uh, otherwise. So it's been, it's been a really good week. Like I, I find that, you know, we, we talk a lot about acceleration and what I started to realize, I mean, I went back to physics, acceleration, velocity over time with direction. Oh, so if you're not, if you're not certain on the direction you're heading or your team is not all in alignment, you're not going to move as fast as you want. I started really trying to focus that down last week and remove some of these distractions for both the people I work with and for myself. Paul, I had a really good week. I mean, as we both talked about off air, I had a really weird night uh, and a lot of monkey mind and a lot of arguing whether I should get up or stay in bed. But by and large, 
Oh, it's it's exciting. So it's it's been good. It's been a good week. Also got back into the publishing stuff. Uh, I got a couple pieces up this week, and uh, I'm getting into that consistency and routine I wanted to have. So uh, it's good. How about you guys? How's the journey going? We got interns. I don't know how John wow. gets these interns, but he's got like this whole workplace set up, and he's getting a whole bunch of interns, uh, probably uh, summertime, uh, you know, interns. John is, uh, and it's one of the things that I think goes along with our conversation about bootstrapping. It's one of the things John does very well, uh, is get interns and nurtures interns very, very well. Um, which is sometimes surprising knowing John, uh, but he does a very good job of nurturing interns. I'm not that good at the internship thing. Uh, so that's why we more so do contractors and full-time people, uh, for our business, but for the startup, interns are awesome, especially if you have someone in your team like John, that him and his team do a great job of uh, enabling interns to do phenomenal things. So I'm excited about that. Well, and, and keep in mind too, right? I mean, if 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 I'm an intern, I mean, you and John are are known, and and your success is known, and you guys are doing some cutting edge stuff. That's really alluring to interns, yeah. and so then you're you're giving them tremendous value in return. That's a fantastic thing. You know, I, I always love it when I get to join you and John on Enterprise Security Weekly, or when John joins us on Startup Security Weekly, because I, I'm always impressed with. Um, I like the dynamic the three of us have. I can clearly see the dynamic that you two have, and and John always impresses me with like knowledge, like business oh, yeah. level stuff, like stuff that trips up most people. John's like, right, well, so it takes this number of days, and it has this many. I'm like, there you go. This is why you guys are successful. So I thoroughly and, enjoy it. On the internship front too, like I refuse to take on a non-paid intern, and I think some of the uh, local schools here where I am they do non-paid internships. I'm like, no, I mean, you have to let me pay this person. Otherwise, like, what's their wow. incentive to show up, right, and do stuff? Because um, they'll be better. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 that's just me. I don't know, in any case. No, I think paying people for, for value is good. I, yeah. I, don't, I would never argue with that. I think it's a great strategy. So, that's, so uh, life is good. Yeah, life is good. That's my journey uh, for this week. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening and watching to Startup Security Weekly. We'll see everyone next time.